0: If you are visiting with us or have not uh, been with us over the last little while, uh, you have jumped in this morning right in the middle of a, uh, a series that we have been going through for a little while. Uh, we've been looking at the overriding, overarching theme of Come Back to Church, is what we've called it. Uh, we've had a number of mini-series throughout the, uh, uh, the course of the last few months. We have our theme verse behind me here, and uh, we are seeking this year to really get a handle Uh, on what church is all about biblically. We know what it is about culturally. We see it everywhere. And we're not interested in taking our cues from the culture. We're interested in being biblical. We're interested in being Christ-centered. And we're studying God's revealed plan for his church. And please note that it is his church. It's not Ours, it's not mine, it's not yours, it is His church. And we are a body of believers that have been appointed by the Lord Jesus Himself here in this place as a local assembly. And we've been looking at what church leadership is over the course of the last few weeks. Uh, and we've looked at the overriding uh, summary of church leadership in three different forms. And we're part way through that. I just want to remind you, perhaps if you're uh, with us for the first time, you may not uh, be familiar with these things, but there are three forms of leadership as seen in the scriptures as it relates to church. Number one, we called preeminent leadership. That is simply Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, the Pope is not the head of the church. Pastor is not the head of the church. Uh, No other man is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Unrivaled irrevocable always the head and we looked at that some weeks ago and then secondly after we looked at preeminent leadership we began a journey on pastoral leadership we looked at what it is for local spiritual leadership in a church pastors shepherds and elders Uh, and uh, that's where we find ourselves right in the middle of uh, this morning And then, Lord willing, next week we're going to be looking at practical leadership which relates to deacons, deaconesses and so forth and how that all operates in the church. Last time we were together three weeks ago uh, dealing with this matter of pastoral leadership, I gave us a couple of headings to begin with and this is going to be part two of them. But just to remind us, the first thing we looked at three weeks ago was misconceptions about the pastor. Some of you will remember that there was some uh, there was a little bit of humor involved in some of it, but there was also a huge amount of truth. And the first thing we talked about is that one of the misconceptions is that the pastor is Superman. Okay, and that we know is a misconception. Uh, We talked about the pastor works one day a week. That is a misconception. The pastor never has problems in his own private life. And that was also a misconception. And we began looking at those things for a few moments. But then we quickly moved on to part two of that message, which was the biblical truths about the pastor. And in that, I explained to us, again, just to put us in the picture, that the pastor, the elder and the overseer and those other terms are all interchangeable. It's the same person. They're not different offices. It's the same function. It's the same person with different functions. And today I want to continue looking at biblical truths as it relates to the pastor. And I want to be very careful when we do this because it's always a little bit difficult whenever I have to preach on a subject like this because it relates directly to what God's called me to do. And so what I want to do is try and remove myself from the picture. So if you hear me talking about myself in the third person, don't think far out, he's fallen off the tree. I want to talk about what the job and the role and the criteria of the pastor is without making it personal because I don't want it to be a personal message I preach to you. I want it to be something that we all understand uh, as we move forward, understanding what this definition of a pastor is. Before I do that, however, uh, I I I thought I'd share something this morning that I stumbled across this week. Some years ago, a research development company interviewed 1,050 pastors on various aspects of the ministry. Some of the results were quite outstanding and astounding. And they give a little bit of an insight into the life and ministry of a pastor. 1,050. And here are some results for you just to think about as we uh, get into this. Of the 1,050 pastors... 948 or 90% stated that they were frequently fatigued and wore out on a weekly or even daily basis. Of the 1,050 pastors, 935 or 89% of the pastors considered leaving the ministry at one time. 590 of the 1,050 said that they would leave if they had a better place to go, including secular work. Of 1,050 pastors that were surveyed, 808 or 77% felt that they did not have a good marriage. Of 1,050 pastors, 756 or 72% of the pastors stated that they only studied the Bible when they were preparing for sermons or lessons. This left only 38% who read the Bible for devotions and personal study. Of 1,000 and fifty pastors eight hundred and two or seventy one percent stated that they were burnt out and they battled with depression beyond fatigue on a weekly or even daily basis of one thousand and fifty pastors three hundred and ninety nine or thirty eight percent of pastors said that they were divorced or currently in the divorce process of one thousand and fifty pastors two hundred and seventy Or 26% of the pastors said they regularly had personal devotions and felt that they were adequately fed spiritually. 26%. Of 1,050 pastors, 241 or 23% of the pastors surveyed said they were happy and felt content on a regular basis with who they are in Christ, in their church and in their home. 23%. And although the data that I'm about to give you is a little bit out of date, focus on the family, some of you would be familiar with that, and the Fuller Seminary, some uh, surmise the following. 1,500 pastors leave the ministry each month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout or contention in their churches. 1,500. 50% of pastors' marriages will end in divorce. 80% of pastors feel unqualified and discouraged in their role as pastor. 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of making a living. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates who enter the ministry will leave the ministry within the first five years. 80%. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. Almost 40% polled said that they have had an extramarital affair since beginning their ministry. These are some fairly concerning statistics, aren't they? We don't look at statistics, we know that, but it's just an interesting uh, little test to see where things are at. It's fairly critical that we understand church leadership, isn't it? That I understand it, that you understand it, that we understand it. Because the Bible makes it clear that God's calling is God's enabling, right? When God calls a person, he enables the person to fulfill that which he's called them to. So something is going wrong in our statistics. Either God didn't call those people, therefore he didn't empower them and they're falling away, or God did call them and those people are not living up to the standards of scripture. It's very serious, isn't it? Church leadership. This isn't just something that we pass on by gently and uh, not give it a second thought. I want to preach a message this morning entitled Pastoral Leadership Part 2. And we're going to look first of all at the biblical qualifications of the pastor. Father, this morning, uh, there's limited time uh, and much information here, Uh, and Lord, uh, it's it's a difficult subject for uh, me to uh, preach on, Uh, but Lord, I pray that you would uh, enable uh, and strengthen and help in this, that you would cause this not to be uh, about individuals as much as understanding what the biblical criteria is for those whom you have called to the role of pastor, elder, uh, overseer, Lord, I pray that you would uh, cause us here at Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church to uh, understand our own calling, whether it be to uh, a full-time ministry service or whether it be to supporting someone in full-time ministry. Whatever the case, Lord, I pray that we would understand our role here uh, at this church, that we would be uh, in prayer and support uh, of those whom you have called uh, to these roles both here and all over the place. We thank you that you are still in the business of calling and enabling, strengthening and empowering for your work. We thank you for that. Lord, we, uh, we listen to the statistics such as what we've just heard and uh, our hearts are, are saddened at the thought of so many uh, men all over the place that, uh, Lord, have left the ministry for many reasons. Uh, and, Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would strengthen those whom you've called. Thank you for uh, this time in your word and we look forward to all that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we turn in our Bibles, I just want to make a couple of quick comments here as it relates to biblical qualifications for a person who is called pastor. I'm sure you'll agree with this statement. We live in a society that loves to redefine God's order, his patterns for life, And his clearly defined commandments in God's word. That's where we live. We live in that right now. Have we not recently, more recently, redefined marriage as a culture? Have we not redefined child rearing? Have we not redefined education, sexual orientation, abortion, morality and so many other things? Have we not redefined those as a culture? We are slowly progressing down a downward spiral, further and further. And Romans 1 tells us that it ends up in a terrible, terrible place. We know that from Romans chapter 1. We know that out there. But sometimes we neglect to realize that the church, for the most part, the church generally, has given over to this mentality as well. We've largely ignored God's will for His church as revealed In the scriptures we seem to be just that little bit behind culture all the way we're following culture we're not necessarily following the scriptures as church on the whole today I read time and time again in my emails every week today we have pastors and church leaders who are openly engaged in homosexuality and we're okay with that I know we're not but we're okay with that as church in a general sense these days We have women assuming roles in the church that are exclusively male. Our church services are no longer about the glory of God and his word. They're entertainment sessions that are filled with emotionalism and psychology. False teaching is rampant in the church and the wolves are scattering the flock. Church is in a terrible state. How did we get here? How did we get to this place where we are now? Well, simply put, we got here because we left off the truth of God's word. We deviated from God's revealed word. That's how we got there. By lapping up what is culturally acceptable and by not keeping a close watch on the church leadership, we have ended up where we are. You see, a sure way to destroy a church is is to bring its leadership undone. And the devil is working hard to destroy God's church. And his primary focus is on the leadership. Because the reality of it is, if he can bring about discouragement, dissatisfaction, scandal, or whatever the case may be in the leadership, very likely, unless God intervenes in a great way, the church will crumble. Because that's the way God designed it to be, that there would be leadership, that there would be a shepherd and a flock. And when the shepherd is uh, in, in a situation where he is removed from that or is discouraged quite quickly, things happen in a church. And we've all seen that in some sense. The devil is doing a great job. You see, what he's done is very, very clever. Today, we have CEOs instead of pastors in a lot of places. We have men who are motivational speakers, but yet never refer to the Word of God. We have pastors who live in open, flagrant sin, and churches do not hold them accountable. We have church leaders whose families do not meet up to the scriptural standards, and yet they continue in that role, though the scriptures make it clear that's not okay, let alone the characters. The character traits and qualities are a far cry from the scriptural standards. Now, I want to pause um, and and make this very, very clear this morning in nothing that I am saying do I not take self-examination on. That's why I don't want to preach from my own heart here yet. I will, but I want to give us clear truth. The Bible makes it clear that no pastor is perfect and you know, please don't think for a moment that standing on this platform by any means means some kind of perfection. I do not think that at all, not for a moment. But the Bible does say this, that the pastor is to be an example in all areas of life. Doesn't mean he doesn't struggle, but he is to be an example in all areas of life. And the Bible is very clear about what qualifies and what disqualifies a man from this high calling. And we want to look at that for a few moments this morning. Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy, please, and chapter 3. 1 Timothy, chapter 3. You'll probably recall as you turn there that the book of Timothy is written by Paul the Apostle to Timothy, who is pastoring the church at Ephesus. And the entire intention of the book of Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, that you might know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, the church. The point of Timothy is, this is how the church needs to run. This is how the leadership need to operate. This is how you need to operate, Timothy, Paul says. That's what the book's about. That's the context of what we're looking at here. Beginning in verse 1, Reading through to verse seven, the Bible says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I'd like you to turn to a complimentary passage, a couple of books along, Titus chapter 1 please. Same goes for the book of Titus, Paul the Apostle writes to Titus with this purpose in mind, Titus I want you to go into this city called Crete and ordain elders or pastors in every city and then he gives us a summary of what they look like, Titus chapter 1, if you'd find verse 5. self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. These two passages, when blended together, form 20, as I count, form 20 individual criteria for this person that is called pastor, elder, and overseer. And you probably guessed it. I'm going to give you those 20. All I'm going to do is tell you what they are, summary of what they are, and then we're going to move on with maybe one or two little comments here and there. But I want us to understand when it comes to this role of pastor, the Bible is clear. The Bible has criteria involved in this. This is not just haphazard. God has a plan in mind. The very first thing I want you to note, if you turn back to 1 Timothy, we'll begin in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. First thing we note about the person that God has called to be the pastor is that this is an exclusively male calling. Now, I know that there may be some who will find this difficult this morning to hear, but I believe, having carefully studied the scripture, that God's calling of the person who is to be pastor of the preaching, as it relates to the public preaching, both mixed gender, is to be male. And I find that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in particular, just before our text here, and verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Furthermore, in chapter 3, we read that in every case, all descriptive adjectives relate in a masculine form. Notice in chapter 3 and verse 1, if anyone aspires the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. An overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, and so on. As we go through, it is in reference always to he Now, I want to pause for just a moment here because there is some misunderstanding today, perhaps even what some might think of what I think in relationship to this. I don't believe for one moment that the Bible forbids a woman to teach. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, it commands the older women to teach the young women in the context of the church. So we're not saying that a woman is not permitted to teach. But I do believe what we are saying is that the calling to pastor, to elder, to overseer is exclusively male. And there are some reasons that we will go into perhaps at another time. But I do believe that we are dealing here, first of all, with a male profession or calling. That's the first thing. Secondly, and significantly harder, we read in verse 2, An overseer must be above reproach. Another word for this would be blameless. In actual fact, if you want to summarize today, if you only get this when you leave, this is the summary. There is one category over here of blamelessness, which covers all of the different attributes that come under it. And the other category is able to teach. Those are really the two categories. They fall into those two categories, everything that we look at. Blamelessness deals with everything else that comes after this. And then there is the ability to teach and preach, divide the word of God accurately. They're the two things really at the end of the day. Blamelessness. Nobody can point a finger at something in particular that is an ongoing issue in that person's life. Thirdly, we see in verse 2. The Bible says, the husband of one wife. Now, this has been in particular a sore point for many, many people over the years. And let me just simply put, after some years of study, my position on this particular uh, place has changed quite a great deal. As I grew up, I was told that this particular verse, that this particular uh, comment around a pastor means a couple of things. It means he can't be married more than once. So he can't be a divorced individual and he can't be a polygamist. He can't have more than one wife. I don't believe that it's teaching either of those two things at all. I believe that based on the Greek word here, it literally means he is a one woman man. This is what this means. It means that that individual is focused on one person, not a whole gamut of other women in his life. He is focused on the one that God has given him. That is his primary calling and his focus. He is not gallivanting around the countryside and he's not chasing after or flirtatious or involved or engaged in that kind of relationship with other women apart from that of his wife. When we look at that in this context, if we change it to a different one, it means that the only sin that prohibits a man from serving in the ministry as pastor is that, he doesn't, uh, that he's not divorced. That's a very deadly doctrine because that means that the blood of Christ does cover everything. It does, but it prohibits something from a previous life outside of Christ. That's dangerous. Now, I think there's some questions that need to be asked when someone comes forward and they have had, uh, you know, three, four, five, six marriages. Perhaps we want to ask some questions there. But because someone was divorced previously, they get saved and the Lord has, has uh, brought someone else together, does not prohibit them from serving in the role of pastor, I don't believe. But most certainly, they are to be a one-woman man. Fourth one, woman man Fourthly, First one Timothy 3 and verse 2 says he is to be temperate. He used to be sober-minded. Our text here says sober-minded. Literally means free from wine. It's literally what the Greek word means. Free from wine. I believe that a pastor ought not to be a drinker. That's my personal position. I don't think the Bible prohibits a pastor from having a drink, but he is certainly free from the power and effect of wine in his life. Uh, I choose to not drink. Uh, That's my own personal choice. I don't think the Bible says you cannot, but I do believe with all of my heart that the pastor is not to be someone who is attached or addicted in any form to wine. Sober-minded. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, fifthly, we see here that he is to be self-controlled. That is that he is to curb his desires, his impulses of his flesh. He's not to be a slave of his Passions. He's not to allow things to get out of order here. He's not to uh, to be engaged in that which is addictive behavior of a fleshly nature. He's to curb his desires and impulses. Number six, the Bible says in verse two, respectable. This is probably uh, better translated as of being of good behavior, well ordered, modest. It's the idea of one's life in their general discourse and their general life that it is an ordered life. That it's not uh, it's not so haphazard and, and everything's going all over the place and nothing has any order to it. It's the idea of it being respectable. Someone looking on would not say this person has just no idea how to live. It needs to be respectable, ordered, modest. First Timothy three two says, and then in verse two we find our seventh aspect. He is to be hospitable, fond of visitors, inclusive of others, generous to guests. Uh, I have always found it a little bit difficult when I have gone to different places and I have noted that the pastor or the person who is fulfilling that role is not particularly interested in people, is sort of all right, I'll come in and I'll preach and now I've done my duty, I'm out of here. And, you know, uh, there's no interest in the lives of people. There's no desire to be involved with people or find out what's happening in their lives and to be inclusive of those. Um, I've always found it hard when you go to a new place and, and, and there's a cold shoulder there from the leadership. That's concerning. There's something wrong because the nature of being a pastor is to be hospitable, to be warm, to be interested in people, to be generous. We see in verse 2 as well, our eighth criteria, able to teach, able to teach. This means skillful in teaching. Not just able to stand up the front and say a few things, but being able to take the Word of God and expose its truth, make application, and that people can listen to it. They, if you're not able to listen to someone, if you're unable to be taught by someone because of whatever reason, whether it be just mannerism or whether it be some other aspect, or they're not able to adequately and accurately divide the Word of God, there's a problem. Because a pastor is called to teach, instruction, instruction, we see in verse 3 that he is not to be a drunkard. Again, we've uh, looked at that already. Not in the habit of drinking or addicted to alcohol. Number 10, in verse 3, we see he's not violent but gentle. Literally, the Greek word here means not a bruiser. Not a bruiser. He doesn't wound others either physically, which I would hope would never occur, but certainly not verbally either not someone who is bruising another person he's not assassinating other people's characters his his goal is not to go around and bring people down now i have seen i have read i have witnessed people who in order to get their own glory are constantly looking to spit venom at others in order that they would look good that is not to be part of a criteria for the pastor number 11 in verse 3 we see here not quarrelsome by this Paul means not contentious he's not quick to fight it's not you argue with me the fists go straight up you have a problem with me and and suddenly it's it's a, a quick strike that's not what the pastor's role is supposed to be there's never a time where quick to quarrel ought to be there I know some people who love controversy they, they, they love it. They're energized by those people who would want to argue and debate. That's not how the pastor ought to be. Verse 3 we see he's not a lover of money. When I look around today, one of my greatest concerns when I see particularly men in so called high positions in church leadership on television or on the internet. I see that there is beneath the surface a real love for money. Everything that they do is about support me, support me, support me, give, give, give. I was just, just the other day I was watching uh, on uh, YouTube, I was watching an interview with two individuals, I won't mention who they are, but they're well known, Uh, and the entire uh, interview, using scripture in bad context, twisted and suffocated, so that no truth was seen it was about providing money for them to buy a new jet that's what the whole thing was about and i looked at it and i i wept as i watched it and i thought there are millions of people who are looking at this who will literally pull out their wallet out of the goodness of their heart and god bless them for being sensitive to that but who will do that because these individuals are keen on one thing lining their own pockets out of the ministry of god that's wicked that's evil. That is not to be the case. Not a lover of money, not greedy, and not motivated by wealth cannot be the case. Number 13. First Timothy 3, 4 says, he manages his own household well. This means that he governs well his home life. There's an order in Scripture. Paul says to Timothy, how can a man take care of the church of God if he cannot take care of his own family. Um, I appreciate uh, particularly the ESV's translation in Titus because it actually says, and I believe it to be exactly what the Greek word means, it actually tells us that the pastor's children need to be converts. That's what it says in Titus chapter uh, chapter 1 there. It says, his children are believers, believing children. Um, If that is true, if that's exactly what the Greek is supposed to be, there are a great deal of men who ought not to be in the ministry. Because God has said, this is how it's supposed to be. Your family is a picture for the church. We ought to look at the life of a pastor, his wife, his children, his family, and say, glory to God, that's how we want the church to be. Because that's the model. That's the model. They are operating in such a way. And yet, you know what's happened and this is what's so dangerous about church, is that quite often the pastor feels so obliged by the people in the church that he spends all of his time working with the people in the church to the neglect of his family. And that's a very dangerous position. And that's at the fault of the pastor and the people. There needs to be a wonderful harmony between time spent at home and time spent in the house of God. Both need to happen and they both are a picture We need to get that right. Manages his own household well. Takes care of his family and rules in a biblical manner. The pastor cannot be a dictatorial my way or the highway leader in his own household. If he is that, it will transfer into the church. And that same leadership uh, rule and methodology will occur. And then we'll have a whole bunch of frightened people just like a frightened wife at home who's wondering when is this all going to go wrong? It's exactly what will happen in the church. God has very, very specific criteria in relationship to the house and home of the pastor. Number 14 in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6, <clears throat> we read here that he is not a recent convert. Literally, he's not green He's operating with some maturity and experience. There's always a danger in too quickly laying hands on someone for the ministry. Paul says that. Lay hands on no one quickly. Let's let them bud. Let's let them grow. Let's watch their life and maturity. Let God take them down the path a little ways. How are they going to be able to help others if they have not experienced some things themselves? Not a recent convert. Number 15, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 7 Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Well thought of by outsiders. Needs to have a reputation of integrity with unbelievers. Must be just and honourable in his dealings. I want to pause a moment and uh, just share with you. Uh, I can't quite remember when it was. Perhaps uh, two years ago, maybe now. uh, I called for uh, an elders meeting. Because some circumstances had occurred in this township uh, whereby there were some uh, some fairly harsh accusations made against me personally. Uh, and I talked to the eldership and I asked them for their opinion as to whether or not I ought to step down from pastor. About two years ago, I think, something like that. Uh, because there were some things happening in the town that directly related to me. I didn't believe they were true, but certainly there were rumors that were occurring because of circumstances in the township. And I was very concerned that the scripture says the pastor needs to be well thought of by outsiders. And I took their wisdom on it. They, uh, they at that time agreed unanimously that no, that was not sufficient evidence for you to step down. And so that was fine. So I didn't. But that gives us an indication... And I hate to make it personal, but it gives us an indication of what we ought to be doing as pastors and what you need to be doing as people looking at lives, looking at the life of the pastor, me looking at my own life, Terry looking at his life and examining, am I meeting this criteria? Circumstances are occurring in my life. I need to take inventory. You'll recall last year, there was three months that I took off as a sabbatical. Um, That sabbatical was a time for me to re-examine whether or not I met the criteria Because there were things going on in my own heart, in my own life, uh, with all sorts of things in uh, in the circumstances around me that caused me to think, am I effectively managing what God has called me to do here? Do I meet the criteria? Because God forbid that that should happen, and I know that I should not be in this role, and I continue. Can you imagine what that will do for the church? Can you imagine how displeased God will be if the conviction on my heart or the conviction on Terry's heart is that we are not meeting the criteria and yet we press on. That's the most dangerous thing that could happen to a church. So we see, and it'd be well thought of by outsiders. If you'd quickly flick over to Titus and I'll just show you the last five here that we see In Titus chapter 1 and verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. Arrogant or quick tempered. This means that he is not self pleasing or self serving. Self willed. He's not doing this. His role and his responsibility for his own benefit. It deals with the motive of the heart. Now that's a bit difficult because it's hard to know. You can't judge the motive of a heart. But after a while you'll see, is that person in this for themselves? Are they looking to do this for their own glory or for their own benefit in some way? The pastor's role and task is not selfish. He cannot be selfish in this. If his motivation is for his own personal good, then he fails to meet the criteria. It cannot be self-serving reasons, not arrogant and not quick-tempered. Number 17 in Titus chapter 1 verse 7, now we have a positive. He must be a lover of good, a lover of good. The pastor ought to be marked by rejoicing in virtue, in holiness, In righteousness, when things that are wonderful and spiritual fruit is developing in people's lives, the pastor ought not to be glum. The pastor ought to be thrilled at the thought that here is an exciting thing that's happening in someone else's life. They are changing, they are growing, they're being conformed to the image of Christ. If that is some kind of uh, form of glumness or sadness, that man is not in it for the right reason. Because what could be greater than God's people rejoicing in virtue and changing and growing? He's to be a lover. Of good number eighteen, this one's a hard one to swallow in verse eight, the one that we we've looked at hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, next word, holy, holy. this means undefiled by sin. Now we know we're all sinners, so it, it cannot mean that the moment that I sin which has already happened this morning, I'd have to resign. Okay, that's not, We're talking about a life that is holy, though. It is, it, it, it is seen as growing in holiness and developing in holiness and is generally marked, that life is marked by holiness. Holiness. Holiness is observing moral obligations and being set apart to Christ. The man loves God. The man loves Christ. The man is his. The man wants to be his. The man wants to grow and change and be more and more like Christ. That's mark the mark of holiness. It's essential to the life of a pastor. Number 19 in verse 8. This one's another one that's a hard one. At the end, and disciplined, and disciplined. Having control over the passions and appetites of his flesh. I tried so hard to not let this verse refer to anything to do with eating. And yet, you know what I've found? It refers to every category of life. I might have given you a little uh, indication as to where I'm working here in this category. This matter of discipline is a life of discipline. As the Holy Spirit puts his finger on aspects of that life that require discipline, that require some loss, some removal, some amputation in order that you can serve more effectively for your people. I remember, I remember distinctly and I need to be very careful not to say who this is. I remember distinctly sitting in a message, hearing a man preach who uh, is very charismatic in his style and, and uh, you would be uh, attached to the style of his preaching. And I remember overhearing a person next to me many years ago say, this man has some wonderful things to say and I'd listen if he wasn't so fat. <laughs> and I remember thinking... Wow, that's really rude. And then some years later, I realized that what they were saying was that we're quite happy to be told what we need to do as long as you're prepared to live it as well. And there's truth to that, isn't there? There's truth. To, if, I, if I stand up here and I say to you, hey, you need to have this, 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 this right. And yet you look at my life and you say, <laughs> you, you do that first. Which is right because it ought to be led by me. It ought to be led by those who are called to to pastor. There's a sense in which that is true. Discipline ought to be a lifestyle of the one who is called because he's calling you to follow in discipline. And then the last one, number 20, is in verse 9 of Titus chapter 1. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Resolute commitment to upholding the truth of God's word and opposing those who will not. Opposing those who will not. Because he says that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. One of the marks of a pastor must be that he loves God's word, he knows God's word and he defends God's word. That is the calling to pastor And it must be there. We cannot ignore or deny that. Now I look at that list and I say, Lord, I fail every single day. And I'm sure you look at that list and say, if I was called to that, I would fail every single day. Who is holy all the time? Who is disciplined all the time? Who is all of these things? But here is what we must keep in, in mind in all of these things. The Lord Jesus Christ, our great over-shepherd, the one who is the, the chief shepherd over all, he is the example by which we follow. And we must walk in that pattern. The Bible is not saying that the person cannot struggle. Praise the Lord. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that the general life pattern is walking with God. Now, I confess this morning, I am prone to discouragement. I am prone to a lack of self-discipline. I'm prone to many of the areas in this list that I have, I have many, many times gone to and identified and made notes. And there are chinks in my armor. Some of these don't bother me at all. You can't tempt me with wine. Okay? That's, that, that there is not a problem whatsoever in my mind. I'm not interested in drinking. I don't want to drink. But you know what? I have a problem with discipline. I have a problem with holiness at times. I have a problem with different things in this list that I recognize. But what you must do as a church, which we're going to get to in a minute, is you must take Terry's life and my life as those who have called to pastor here and you must look at them regularly against this list and check and make sure that there is no deviation from this. Hey, there's a few speed bumps along the way. But these men who are called by God need to maintain this standard. As they walk in order that the church may flourish and that you may mimic their faith. That's what Paul is calling us to. Those are the qualifications of a pastor. Before we finish this morning, second and final point should only take a few minutes. Now comes to practicalities for you. It's all well and good for me to tell you all about what I need to be and what Terry needs to be from the Bible. Now, secondly, this is what we need to understand. What are the responsibilities of the church towards the pastor as we close this little session on pastoral leadership what are your responsibilities church as the flock as the local assembly we had almost no time to go through those 20 points and i hope you're impressed with how quickly we went through 20 points that's like record but hopefully you get this at least god places a high emphasis on this calling to pastor This is not just some little thing. This is the greatest and highest calling in all the world. I think it was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who says, if God calls you to be a preacher, don't stoop to be a king. That's true. If you are not called to it, don't go anywhere near it. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said to his people when he was lecturing his students, he said, if God will let you do anything else, go do it. Don't be a pastor. But if he will not, you go with all the fire and the zeal and the power of God to do it. See, this is not a role filled with glory, it's a role filled with calling. God has called. I can wake up with certainty every day of my life and know that God has called me to this. If there were a way out, trust me, I'd be gone already. I've tried to quit that many times, but the Lord won't let me do that. That's how I know it's a call. You understand there's an emphasis on this calling and the standard of that calling in order to lead the flock. But there are responsibilities placed upon the church as it relates to the pastors. What are these? We're not going to have time to turn to these, so you'll have to uh, perhaps make some notes. The first thing that we see in the scripture is to appreciate and respect them. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labour among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Okay? Like I said earlier, it's so hard to preach this. Because in essence what I'm saying is appreciate and respect me. Because I'm just such a wonderful... I'm not saying that. Okay? But it's hard to share this. You understand why? Can you imagine preaching... So, so I'm not asking for this for myself. I'm saying this is what the scripture teaches. Your responsibility is like mine is before. Appreciate and respect. And it doesn't mean... Uh, This appreciation and respect and love, it's it's not like the world does that. And it's not about patting someone on the back or it's not about false glory. It is about appreciating what God has given. It's not even about the individual. It's about we appreciate that God has provided and called someone for this assembly here and those assemblies out there and wherever else. We appreciate, we love and we honor those people as those called to the highest calling in all the world. Number two. Obey them, appreciate and respect them. Firstly, secondly, obey them. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you." Now, it's normal that when uh, the the pastor up the front says, "Now listen, people, you need to obey your leaders." everybody sits up a bit straighter and goes, well, hang on a second, who do you think you are? Okay. Here's what this means, okay? And just to clarify, if anybody says this to you, when the Bible speaks of obedience to leaders, it speaks only in relationship to that which is consistent with Scripture. Okay, I do not in any way, shape or form have the right to tell you what car to buy what clothes to wear, unless they relate to scriptural patterns, scriptural teaching, that's different. But people go way too far with this. Pastors get up on their high horse and tell and instruct people to do things that have no relationship whatsoever to spiritual things. The only authority any pastor has as it relates to the church is in consistency with the scripture. Full stop. That's it. By the way, let me just say this. One day, and I'd like you to get your head in, in gear on this, because this is massive and it, 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 it bothers me a great deal and it breaks my heart a great deal too as I think about it. One day, Terry and I will stand before the Lord and we will give an account for this church. We will stand before. And we will give an account for our leadership in this church, for the way in which we administered love and care and compassion. Every word that I speak from behind this pulpit that is idle, I will give an account for and everything that i do by way of counseling with someone when i sit and i cry and i pray and i seek to counsel and every time my motive is wrong and every time every time i give poor advice that is not scriptural all of that will one day be brought to my attention in glory not for condemnation but it will be for either reward or the loss of reward and so Paul, who I believe is the author of Hebrews says, obey your leaders as it relates to the things of the Lord, because one day they're going to give an account for the decision that you made. Whoa, that affects me a great deal. And there's one thing that keeps me sober minded in this is that one day before my Lord and judge, I will stand and give an account for my pastoring here as will Terry. That is a huge, huge, huge responsibility. But importantly, obey them. As it relates to the scripture, the authority is the word of God. Number three, support them. What can I do? What can I do as the sheep of this fold for the pastor? Support them. First Timothy five seventeen to 18 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. The labourer deserves his wages. The point here is not just financial, that's a part of it, but it is support in general, their life, what they have. Um, Like I said the other week, don't forget that the grass still grows at the pastor's house. You say, what do you mean? Well, he still has to cut his lawn as well as everything else that goes on. Be supportive of the life that God has called them to. Uh, in, in our case, uh, these pastors need to work, and that's fine. But they're bivocational. Therefore, you support in that. You, you pray and you, you, uh, you understand their situation. Support involves understanding of those who are called to leadership. Support them. Number four, and we're almost done. This is one you won't have heard probably too often from behind a pulpit. Number four, discipline them. 1 Timothy five nineteen to 20 says this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says your responsibility is to watch carefully our lives to make sure that we're not deviating. And if we do, and you come and rebuke and challenge us, as long as there's real proof on that, that you do that, and yet we remain in a way that we want to do our own thing, we're getting proud now, we're getting our role here or whatever. The Bible says that the rebuke comes to the forefront. An elder's rebuke is much more serious than any other kind of rebuke in the church. It says before the, all the crowd, bring them to the front, and they need to be made accountable for the deeds they've done. What the Bible says. And so it's essential you keep an eye on our lives in order that if, God forbid, that should ever occur, that discipline can happen as it ought to in the scripture. Number five, mimic them. Hebrews 13 7 says this Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Your responsibility as a church is if I'm meeting the criteria that I ought to. And Terry is that you would mimic our faith. You look at our lives and say, I want to be like that. Now, I want to be like Jesus Christ, of course. But here is a, a lesser picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's someone who's walking with the Lord. I want to have that same faith, that same perseverance, that same resolute desire for the word of God. I want to be like them. That's a good thing. That's a good thing in a church. That's the way it ought to be. Mimic them and their faith. Number six, and we've got one after this. Pray for them. First Thessalonians 5:25. Sometimes Paul can be so succinct he just says, "Brothers, pray for us." And maybe you wonder, well, what should I pray? Pray for strength. Pray for balance and discipline. Pray for protection from sin, Satan and distractions. Pray that he would not get burned out or become lazy. Pray that his walk with God would be rich. Pray for the leadership in the home. Pray for his involvement in the community. If you're not sure what to pray, just go through 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 and pray for every one of those things that your pastor and pastors would live in such a way that these characteristics would be there. Pray that. Pray that. Number seven, in conclusion. Attend regularly with them. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've grown up in a circumstance... Where attending church, this was the mentality that I was told. Whenever the doors are open, you must be there. That's what I was told growing up. And it was hammered into me. Hammered and hammered and hammered. Let me say this to you. Whenever the doors are open, please don't come. Okay? Because whenever the doors are open, which is probably every day... And sometimes in the middle of the night while I'm studying here, if you want to come then, that's fine. But don't come whenever the doors are open. That's not the key. That's not what we're trying to say. But what we are trying to say is, if you are part of the body, be part of the body. I don't think the the Bible puts no stipulations on, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday nights, this and that, and all these other things we see out there that people say is standard. That's not what the scripture says. But it does say, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And there are many different things that happen in the church as a body. Be a part of them where God wants you to be. Be sensitive to him so that you know when you ought to be there and when you ought not to be. Not everybody's going to be at Kellogg Lodge. Not everybody's going to be at Yay Bible Study. Not everybody's going to be at Kids Club. Not everybody's going to be everywhere. That's fine. But let me encourage you to be where you can be. Make this a priority to be together because we need it. The body doesn't function unless the body works together. We need it. We need to be together. And let me just say one of the most discouraging things, which is not right on my part, but one of the most discouraging things can be you can prepare some 15 or 16 hours of work in the word and then nobody shows up. Now, that is wrong on my part because it makes no difference. God wanted me to do that. So you do it. But it is a good thing to be together. It's a good thing to be in fellowship with one another. We live for this, I hope, because this is absolutely essential. I can't, if I miss a Sunday, if I go on a holiday and I miss a time to be together, I feel it inside me. I, feel, I, I miss it. I just, oh, I need it. I want to be with my church. And when I go away and preach somewhere else, I really don't want to anymore. I want to be here with our people. Attend regularly. Those are the seven things. Appreciate and respect them. Obey them. Support them. Discipline them. Mimic them. Pray for them. Attend regularly with them. The highest calling and the noblest task this side of eternity is to lead the flock of God. It is not an easy thing, church. It's not always a joyous thing. But it is a clearly defined role in the scriptures. And it comes with specific criteria. As we close, Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church, our regulars that are part of this body, Two things, keep a close eye on those of us who are called to lead and support love and encourage them all the while remaining vigilant that the biblical criteria is met. May God be glorified here. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this time we've been able to spend together. Uh, Lord, this is a, a mammoth topic that we have really uh, done a flyby look at. Uh, But, Lord, I pray that uh, there's been sufficient for us here this morning to understand the emphasis that you place upon church leadership, pastoral leadership. Lord, I pray that as we go away from this, it would not be in our minds, uh, Lord, uh, about an individual as much as the scriptural teaching, albeit that we would go and consider those whom you've called to be here, uh, Terry and myself as pastors, Uh, And that, Lord, if there would be any area of our lives that need to be brought to account, uh, Lord, may we receive that well, and may those ones who have concerns bring that to us lovingly. Lord, that's how church works. That's what we read in your word. We mutually depend upon one another to live as we ought to. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who convicts us individually. Lord, as we go from a message such as this, for me, Lord, that I would constantly examine these truths, Lord, for uh, this local assembly that uh, they would have the wherewithal now to look at how they can most be supportive for those who are called uh, to pray and to, uh, to love and all those other things we mentioned. Thank you for, uh, thank you for this time that we can uh, have together as we sing and close our service in Jesus' name. Amen.